Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help, put us, help us put away all our distractions this morning. And Lord, forgive us our sins so that we can hear your word with a clean heart and a right spirit that is humble and teachable. For your word, Lord, is a lamp at our feet, guiding our steps through this life. Holy Spirit, let your anointing fall on Pastor Jackie as he brings forth your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Again, our journey through the, the book of Romans, we discussed in chapter 1 that the first division, if you will, of the book of Romans dealt with the principles of the righteousness of God. And those principles that we've talked about all the way through chapter 8 was that every man, woman, and child on earth is guilty of offending, devaluing, of not loving, not honoring the Lord God Almighty. And as a result, we are all under condemnation. The first principle for, for the righteousness of God is that we would understand that you and I... Every man, woman, and child is condemned before God. But God doesn't leave us there. That's just the beginning. He takes us from the place of condemnation, and then Jesus Christ came. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the miracle of justification. That Jesus came to take all our wrongs, and to give us all His rights. And... The wrongs that he took were all those things we're guilty of that condemn us before God. The miracle of justification is that salvation is a work first and foremost of God. We receive a work that he accomplished. We receive it by faith, right? We put our faith and trust in Christ. Remember we talked about letting go of the cliff and putting both hands in the hands of Jesus Christ. By justification, we mean that Jesus covers us with His righteousness. He takes upon Himself our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a perfect example of it. That uh, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's justification. Second principle. Third principle was sanctification. Sanctification is an act of God. He lives in us. So you become set apart. That's what sanctification means. Set apart. He is inside of us. What once upon a time was an external set of commands to try to lead us into righteousness has now become an internal desire because by faith Jesus Christ has been received into our life, right? That's why we prayed to ask Jesus into our heart. That Jesus Christ has been brought into our life and so now we have internal desires and His righteousness propelling us so that we, in a sense, are sanctified the moment we're saved, but also in reality we are growing in holiness, right? Prayerfully for every believer that's been a believer for, for years, we're further along now than we were when we first believed, right? So we have the second principle of the righteousness, or the third principle of the righteousness of God, sanctification. Then the, the fourth or last principle we talked about in chapter 8. Remember we said Jesus is in us. Whoops. Jesus is in us. 
He's covered us. He's working a work of, of sanctification in us. And the final principle is the principle of, it's twofold, security and glorification. We read it really as we were working our way at the end of chapter 8, when the Lord declares that you have been justified, you have been sanctified, you have been glorified. And remember I messed with everybody's noodles last week and I said if you really want to want to mess yourself up those people who have gone before who have who have left this earth and have gone into the presence of God Almighty and they're in heaven in a place in heaven which is outside of time but in a realm of eternity where you don't have past present and future you just have now and I said we may all be with them already That's why God can speak of glorification from the past tense. Because as far as God's concerned, you're His. You're going to be glorified. And it's so sure. Your security is. It's so sure because it depends on Him. And it doesn't depend on you and I. So we worked our way through the principles of the righteousness of God. But now we come to the second division of the book of Romans. Now sometimes people think chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul turns his gaze and looks at the Jewish people. I don't think he does that. I think he's got the Jewish people in mind from chapter 1. He's writing to, to Jews and Gentiles, believers in Rome. But I think he has them always on his mind. And when we come to 9, 10, and 11, we, we're going to start to talk about the problem. What's the problem of the righteousness of God? The problem, see, we all need the righteousness of God to, to live a life that honors and glorifies God. We have to have his righteousness. And he just told us as we culminated in chapter 8, began with, there is now therefore no condemnation, and it ended with, there is no separation, right? We see all these good things to the promises of God, to those who belong to God, but it brings you to a problem. And the problem is, well then what about the Jew? If you belong to God and you're God's, and he finishes what he starts, how does that relate to the nation of Israel. And there's the beginning, we're just going to look through the first five verses as Paul introduces this new concept. But in this beginning, all Paul's sharing with us is his heart. And his heart is and has always been that God's chosen people, the Israelites, would come to faith. When we look at the the next, there's three parts that we're going to talk about when we talk about the problem and the righteousness of God. And the first is the rejection of Israel. And that's where we find ourselves in in chapter 9. And the second is the the receiving of the Gentiles. And the third is a future promise. We're going to see a future promise yet laid out for the nation of Israel that God's plan for Israel is not finished. That Israel is going to be restored. But as we look at the rejection, before we run too far down there, and this is what the, the area in theology or in doctrinal areas where people develop what's called replacement theology. Replacement theology states that um, we have all become spiritual Israel. There's not any longer an ethnic or established Israel. It's, it's all spiritual. So Israel becomes the church. And the problem is, God made a lot of promises to Israel, 
And he said, I'm going to fulfill them. He tells us in chapter 11. You'll see it as we get there. So God still has a plan. And when we look at it, we need to know. There is right now an ethnic remnant of Israel that are God's chosen people. Now, I'm not stating that we can't be spiritual Israel because we're going to see we are when we get to chapter 10. But I'm saying God hasn't replaced them. He's still working through them. That's why we can take the promises of Romans chapter 8. There is now therefore no condemnation and no separation and say they're absolutely sure because God didn't break His promises to Israel. He fulfills His promises to Israel. But what we see as we begin and as we begin to talk about that subject, this subject, is the heart of Paul. And the heart of Paul, man, is, uh, is broken. He wants to see his countrymen, not just his family, not just the, the people that he knows. He longs to see his country saved. Now, I don't know how you feel, but I know, I know that the problems in the United States of America have absolutely nothing to do with who's president or what laws are on the books or who did what to whom. The problems in the United States of America are spiritual problems and they can only be reconciled through spiritual renewal. Only the people whose God is the Lord can expect and understand and, and, and recognize, I guess, God's hand of blessing moving through the people. God still blesses our nation. It should not be shocking. The Lord tells us that when there's a relationship between a man and a woman who are married and one saved and the other's not, the Bible tells that God, He, he pours out His Spirit upon the family, the blessing of God on the family because of the one saved person. The Bible says God knows who are His and who aren't. And as long as one of His is there, God blesses it. Now, Jackie, that's crazy. You guys ever read the story of Joseph? You guys know the story of Joseph? Joseph was a slave, right? The Bible doesn't say there was a lot of believers with Joseph as he was a slave. But it says as he worked at Potiphar's house, what happened to Potiphar's house? It was blessed. Then he got accused of a rape he didn't commit, right? And got thrown into jail. The Bible doesn't tell us there was a lot of believers in jail, but we know Joseph was there. What happened in jail? It was blessed. Everything he did was blessed. Why? Because when God's people will be who God's people are supposed to be in the midst of a rebellious and hateful world, God will still bless... What's going on in that place? And so I, I think that that's a lot of, the, of what we see and what we can recognize. And so I can understand Paul's desire, his heart for his people. I would love to see our nation be who everyone, or at least who we used to say we were. I don't know if we ever were, but who we used to say we were, we're not. And this is, this is Paul's heart. Listen to Paul's burden. He lays it out for us in the first three verses. Look at it. It says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Now, why do you think he would start that way? <coughs> well, that's a strange way to start, isn't it? I tell the truth. I am not lying. The reason he begins that way is Paul has said a lot of things that could be interpreted as being 
against his nation. Jeremiah the prophet was often charged with that same idea. Jeremiah the prophet received from the Lord, tell the people to stop fighting. They're going to be slaves. They're going to be conquered. And I don't want them to die. So tell them to stop fighting and, and just let it happen. So Jeremiah is on the streets preaching, lay down your arms, stop fighting. God wants you to go into captivity. You're going to go into captivity one way or the other. If you continue down this road, you're going to die instead of going into captivity. Now how do you think that sounded to the nation, to the army, to the people who were willing to fight? We're God's people. We should fight. We should do battle against all these things. So Jeremiah was counted a traitor. And the people fought and were conquered four times. More died whoever had to die. And they ultimately went into captivity. You know how I know that Jeremiah had a burden for his people? Do you know what happened to Jeremiah? He died beside the rebellious people who would not listen. After the last conquering, there was a remnant. And they're running around in the wilderness. And Jeremiah was offered a palatial mansion if he just came to Babylon. Because the Babylonians thought he was on their side. But really, he's on God's side. And so there was this opportunity for for fame and fortune and everything that goes with it. And over here was a remnant who wouldn't listen to anything he said. And Jeremiah said, I'd go with them. And then they asked him, Jeremiah, you're the word of the Lord for us. We're going to go to Egypt. What do you think we should do? Is that what God would have us do? And Jeremiah said, no, absolutely not. God said, if you go to Egypt, you're going to die. And they said, we don't really care what you have to say. We're going to Egypt. And Jeremiah went with them. So when the armies of Babylon came and conquered Egypt... He died beside the people who wouldn't listen to Him. That's a burden for the lost. That's why Paul in Acts would say, Look, I know I'm going to be in chain. I know they're going to arrest me. I know they're going to beat me. But I'm going to go anyway. Because I have a burden for my people. That's why Saeed went where he went. And he's one of a list of hundreds, if not thousands, of guys that are facing similar situations around the world. Around the world. Persecution everywhere. And people ask questions like, well, guys, if it was going to be persecution there, why didn't they just go someplace else? Because they got a burden on their heart. Paul says, I tell the truth. Because people thought he was against them. Was Jeremiah against the people? No, he was for them. He just was going to tell them the direction they needed to go. And Paul's doing the same thing. That's why he has to say, I tell the truth. I'm not lying. I just remind you of a couple verses. Romans 2.24. He says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now he's saying that to the Jews. That's not winning him any popularity contest, right? In chapter 3, Romans 3.9. He says, What then? Are we better than they? Speaking of the Jews. Are we, Paul being a Jew, we the Jews better than they, the Gentiles? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all 
under sin. Oh, that was looked at as you're against your own people. So Paul starts when he lays out his heart. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. I want you to understand. I want you to know. He couldn't prove that he was burdened for them any other way than to say, I'm telling you the truth, and to plead that his conscience was being moved by the Holy Spirit. Look what he says. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. My conscience bearing me witness. Our conscience is the moral determiner. And the moral determiner in our lives can only be a witness for us if it's in submission to the Holy Spirit and being governed by the Word of God. Everyone's got a conscience, right? Little Jiminy Cricket sits on her shoulder. But if Jiminy Cricket is saved, then your conscience can be a good guide. If Jiminy Cricket isn't, it doesn't matter if you listen to him or not. So Paul said his next thing, not only am I telling you the truth, but my conscience is bearing me witness through the Holy Spirit. It's submitted to the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit is doing, and how the Holy Spirit was working in their life. Scripture gives us a couple of examples of using this, and maybe it'll help us kind of grasp what Paul's saying about his conscience. In John 8 9, it says, Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest to the last, and Jesus was left alone with the woman in her midst. Remember the woman caught in the act of adultery? Jesus riding in the sand. And one by one, their conscience convicted them. One of the things that the Holy Spirit does in the world is convict the world of what? Sin. So it convicts the world of sin. And as they were looking at what Jesus wrote, they were convicted by the Holy Spirit and their conscience bore witness. Here's a, a, another example. It kind of follows along with, uh, with what Paul's saying in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. In 2 Corinthians 1, 12, this is Paul speaking. He says, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. So again, he uses the concept, my conscience bearing witness that what? That you lived your life as a godly example before the people. That conscience has value in the life of a believer when it is submitted to the Holy Spirit and grounded in the Word of God. So that's why Paul could say this. He wants them to understand his heart, where he's coming from. And then he lays it out. Look at verse 2. He lays it out. He says, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. So that, that's where he lays out the burden. The, 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 this burden that he has is characterized by sorrow and grief. And not just like, you know, I'm a little down in the dumps today. He's talking about great sorrow and great grief. And, and <clears throat> immediately that concept <clears throat> reminds me of something that the psalmist gave us. In Psalms 125 or 126, verse 5. Listen, this is what he says. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth Weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. 
Sometimes the ministry that we have is a ministry of tears. Today is a ministry of tears. We say goodbye to people who we love. But it's also a ministry of tears of excitement. What God's going to do. And how God's going to move. And how God's going to work. God never called us to sit in our chairs and be comfortable. And never move outside of our little box for Him. He called us to be willing. And that's why Paul is saying, man, I have continual great sorrow and grief. That's why his heart was to minister to his people. To minister the love of Christ with them. And the reason, listen, Paul's heart is in great sorrow and grief is because his people are accursed. The next verse, Paul says, I would be anathema, accursed for their sakes. Why does he say that? He says, I want to take on their punishment. What's happening to them, I want to take on to me because they won't believe. Now, if you ever had someone you loved that you were sharing the gospel with, and they wouldn't hear, they wouldn't hear, then you should understand how Paul feels. I think about this with my own kids. I worry about this with them. I worry about this with my, my family, extended family and, and friends. The people that I have poured into and shared with. But I can't see their heart. I can't see what's happening in their life. And if they're accursed, I'd rather that be on me and them be saved. And that's what Paul's saying. The curse was on them. Why are they accursed? How are they accursed? The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ became our curse. You remember justification? He took upon Him our curse. He took upon Him the curse of the, of the nation of Israel. He took upon Himself the curse of the, of the United States and Europe and everything around the world. In order for His blood... To be sufficient, and that's what the Word of God teaches, that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient. It is not efficacious to everyone, but it is sufficient for all. In order for that to be true, then He had to die for them all. Every one of them. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? Absolutely. God so loved the world. The world. That word in John 3.16 can only mean the whole world where people live. So... He died for the whole world. So rejection of Jesus Christ is to place yourself under the curse. To be anathemized. To have your own punishment on your own head. And Paul, his heart breaking with love for his people, he says in that, in that last part of, uh, of uh, verse 3, he says that, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Look, he's just talking about his Jewish brothers. That, that They are lost. You don't get saved by being born of the line of Abraham. That's very clear throughout Scripture. I don't think you ever did. Now, some people might argue with me. I think everyone is saved by their faith in the Mashiach Nagid. Before Jesus came, you had the promise of the Messiah. So you lived your life believing in the promise of the Messiah. Then you had faith. And faith is what saved Abraham, right? 
So, I think that's how it worked. I think that faith was seen in different ways. For the Jewish people, that faith was seen when they, when they uh, applied the blood, if you will, of the sacrifice upon their lives, the sacrificial system. That was all saying, I believe in this principle of a Messiah coming, even though I've not seen Him. But it had nothing to do. There were people born in Israel who never did a sacrifice, who never listened, who never did nothing. The Bible tells us not everyone who says they are of Israel is Israel. Right? We're going to see that in chapter 9 as we continue through, but we're not going to get there today. So don't worry. (coughs) I know that shocked some people. But this same attitude we saw in Moses. Didn't we see it in Moses? When the people had made the golden calf... And the judgment of God was to fall, Moses said in Exodus 32, uh, verse 32, Yet now, if you will, forgive their sin. So God, if you're willing, forgive their sin. But if not, blot my name out of your book, which you have written. The same attitude. We can argue over the semantics, is it the same book, is it the same thing? But the point is, it's the same heart, right? The same burden. I'll take their punishment. I'll take it. That's the heart of someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit and called of God. I'll take their punishment. You say, now come on. I don't know that that's true. Why should that be our attitude? Um, because Jesus stood before the entire world and He said, come and follow me. And what did He do? Oh, He took their punishment. On himself. So that they would have opportunity to be saved. That's what God calls us to. That's why God's people take risks and go to crazy places. That's why when you can be utterly and completely comfortable up on the stage and just continue with the status quo and just do worship. It's God's going to bless it and God's going to do great things. But then God opens up a door. Like Paul said, an effective door of ministry has been opened unto me. So I'm going through it. And all the comfort might go with it. But it's okay. That's the road Jesus Christ stands on and says, Come and follow me. Come and follow me. That's the heart, the burden. And he goes on to consider this burden that he has. Not only... Is he grieved with sorrow because these are his people and he, and he loves them? But he's also grieved because of the blessings that they have received. So there's nine blessings. We're going to look at those nine blessings. That's as far as we're going to go. And I want you, please, as we look at those nine blessings, don't just think of Israel. Think of yourself. Paul said one of the big traps in people's lives is they spend all their time considering how something in the Word of God affects someone else instead of how something in the Word of God affects them. We spend so much time thinking, I'm hope, I hope my husband is listening. Or I hope my wife is listening. Or please God, I hope my kids are listening. And forget that God's speaking to us. To us. So listen to the nine blessings. It's in verse 4 and 5. First blessing. Who are Israelites? Chapter 9, he's going to tell us not everyone who's born of Israel is of Israel. He's going to give us the concept of spiritual Israel as we come into chapter 10. Israel, what is Israel? When God took Jacob, whose name means supplanter, heel catcher, the guy who tries to pull someone else down to elevate himself. When he changed his name 
from Jacob to Israel, what was the purpose? That name change established, governed by God. And you look through the Old Testament, it's kind of a cool study, at the different times when God calls Jacob, Jacob, and when God calls Jacob, Israel. That's like, you know, when, you're, when your mom is shouting at you across the road and she, she just says, Jackie, is different than when she says, Jackie Lloyd! Do we know the difference? Oh, somebody's in trouble. Somebody's not been listening. We see the same thing in Scripture. The word Israel, the title, means Prince of God or governed by God. That that they are in submission and a relationship with God Almighty. First blessing. The first blessing, what is it? God's people. They're God's people. In in Romans 11.1, it says... I say then, has God cast away His people, the nation of Israel? Certainly not. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's not talking about spiritual Israel. If he's talking about spiritual Israel, he'd say, I am of faith like my father Abraham. That's not what he says. He's talking about his ethnicity. He called himself, I am an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, of the seed of Abraham. So he's saying there is the ethnic choice that God made for a remnant of faithful, believing Israelites. It can be applied to you and I from the concept of the blessing of being God's people that were governed by God. And we'll see that, we'll see that relationship as we come into chapter 10 and we see that we've been grafted in to the, to the olive tree. But, the, the first blessing that he points to the people, they're God's people, chosen of God, elect of God. The very same language used of every believer, right? Chosen of God, the elect. Next we see God's purpose. Look at the next part. <clears throat> to who pertain the adoption. That means God gives us a purpose. We just read about it in, in Romans chapter 8, right? That by His Spirit, He has given us a spirit of adoption by which we can... Call out, Abba, Father, Dad, I need you. Dad, I need you. It's our purpose in life. The adoption speaks of our purpose. It did for Israel too. In Hosea 11.1, in Hosea 11.1, listen to what God said. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The Hebrew word for I loved him is the same as I chose Him. He's mine. Every adoption of an, even a natural son in the ancient world was accomplished by a father saying to this boy, whether his, it could be his natural son or another son, that I have chosen you. You're mine. And that adoption gave that purpose. You're part of the family. You're part of the family. Second blessing. Is God's purpose. First blessing being God's people. Then he goes on to the third one. The glory. You see it? Who are Israelites. One. To, per- to whom pertain the adoption. Two. God's purpose. Three. And the glory. Just says the word. The glory. The glory. What's that talking about? It's talking about God's presence. The blessing of God's presence. When they set up the tabernacle. And the cloud of God descended on the tabernacle. People couldn't even go inside of it. 
And we think about it in terms of a cloud. Like, it was so cloudy, you couldn't go in. Now, have you ever experienced that? Something so cloudy, I found myself in the middle of something so cloudy or foggy, I shouldn't have been in. But what the word means in Hebrew is the kabod, the weight. The weight of God's presence was so thick, people couldn't get in. When the children of Israel were going across Egypt, what do we have? A pillar of fire, right? We sung about it tonight. Or, or the cloud that led them. What do we call that? The presence of God. What about in the life of a believer? The Holy Spirit is in your life. Jesus Christ lives in your heart. You have the God of the universe living inside of you. Romans 3.21, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you open the door, what? I'll come into you. In you. Relationship inside. It's the presence of God. The third blessing. The presence of God. <coughs> then he goes on. The covenants. The covenants. These are God's contracts. I look at them as God's promises. There are three covenants he's talking about. We won't unwrap them all. But there's three covenants that pertain to Israel. Three covenants that pertain to Israel, the nation. The Abrahamic covenant, uh, the Davidic covenant, what's the third one? Somebody help me. You're saying, I hope you know what it is. <laughs> oh, the Mosaic covenant. That Moses is kind of a big guy, right? And I should remember him. So the Abrahamic covenant is a promise of God, an eternal covenant. All of these are eternal covenants. A promise of God for the nation of Israel that they would have the land forever. And that they would have God's blessing forever. No separation. No condemnation. That that was a covenant, a promise of God forever. The Mosaic covenant was the law. And the law was given them, but there was a sign. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant that you were under the Abrahamic covenant was, was uh, circumcision. Circumcision was a sign between the nation of Israel and God. The second under the Mosaic Covenant is uh, the law. And the sign for the law was the Sabbath day, which is an eternal covenant with the nation of Israel. Forever. An eternal covenant promised to God. What is the promise of, of Abraham? The promise of Abraham is a home. The promise of Moses is rest. And the promise of David is a king. A home, rest, and a king. But we have those same promises, don't we? They're different. I'm not saying we have the same, but I'm saying, <clears throat> do we have a home? Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. Now what Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, bring you unto myself, that where I am there you will be also. Does Jesus promise us rest? Absolutely. Our rest, He is our Sabbath rest, the Bible declares. And our King, that's the same. Right? Who's the King of kings and Lord of lords? Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So, so to them, to them pertain... Those covenants, God's promises. Next we have not only those, not only God's promises, uh, not only the covenant, but in verse 4, the next, the giving 
of the law. You guys see it? The giving of the law. That's God's principles. They had God's principles. The law. Back then and today, it's God's principles for us. God's guideline for us. Romans chapter 3. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 3. He said, What advantage then has the Jew, or what profit was there in circumcision? Much in every way, for unto them were committed the oracles, or principles, of God. The things that honor the Lord. It's on your lap. It's in the chair back in front of you. The principles that honor God. These are the blessings that God has given to His people. Next, the Scripture says, not only the giving of the law, but the service. The service. The word is latreu. That word is speaking of worship. Not just working, but worship. The worship of God's people. The worship that they would do. What is that talking about? It's talking about God's place. Not only do you have a home, but God has one in you. That place. Where is God at home? In the place of worship. For the children of Israel (coughs) was the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple in the kingdom. And each one was God's place where God would be, where the people could come and relate with Him. Relate with the Lord God Almighty. And how did they relate? They worshipped. They worshipped. Do we have a place where God meets us, where we can come and worship? That's why the Scripture declares, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is a matter of some, and so much more as you see the day approaching. God tells us, Come, just like He told the nation of Israel, to come to the place where God would meet them, where they could provide service to God. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable act of worship. That's how we serve God. That's how we meet God in His place. The nation of Israel had a place Next, as we continue on, he tells us, and the promises. Now, a lot of people want to link those two. The covenants and the promises aren't the same thing. Different words. The covenants were God's contract with with the people. The promises were the messianic prophecies of Messiah, the prophecies of the Messiah. Those were God's promises. The, the, the word used there is 53 times in the New Testament, if you really want to know, 53 times in the New Testament, always referring to prophecies. We're talking about the prophecies of Jesus Christ, that He was coming, that He would be born of a woman. The Proto-Evangelicum, which was spoken of in Genesis 3.15, which is the first mention of the Gospel. All of these things are God's promises to His people. It says, I'm sending you a deliverer. I'm sending you someone who will save you from your sins. I'm sending you someone who can bring you into a real relationship with me. So to them, the Jewish people, they had God's promises. All of these things, all of these blessings, we can see in our lives as well. Not only that, he said, of whom are (coughs) the fathers? Who are their fathers? Abraham, Isaac, 
Jacob. How many times do you hear God say, I'm not ashamed to be called by your names? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of all those people who aren't perfect. Right? You, you might be okay until you got to Jacob. You're not going to ever be able to make a case for Jacob. So just don't even try. He's not ashamed to be known by their names. They're the fathers. The fathers. Through them, through those fathers, we receive faith the same way. It's their testimonies we're reading. It's their lives that lead us and bring us to Messiah. <laughs> I keep kicking things up here. You guys notice that? <clears throat> all those say I kicked olive oil a, a little while ago. Yeah, sometimes that happens. But the fathers, those are the fathers. Listen to what the scripture tells. Hebrews 1 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers through prophecy, through the fathers, the same fathers that we have. So we have the promises of God laid out for us. God's patriarchs, the last one, the most important one. Listen to it. From whom, according to the flesh, Christ. According to the flesh, Christ came. Who is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. In Christ, they make three specific examples. Three specific points that he points to in in the blessing of Christ. First, his incarnation, who came in the flesh. Right? That's one of the first promises in the Bible. That the, that God would be born in the flesh. Genesis, uh, Genesis 22. Genesis 22, Abraham takes his son, offers him on Mount Moriah, which would become later on Mount Calvary, many people believe. He would offer his son there on Mount Calvary. In fact, the Dome of the Rock, where the Dome of the Rock is today, in the middle of Jerusalem, the, the, the legend is it's built over the place where Abraham offered it, the wrong son, his son Ishmael, which, anyways. So, that's the Dome of the Rock. Um, the same area, Abraham took his son, offered his son, God stopped him, right? God stopped him, no, now I see that you, that you love me more than your son. And then what did he call the place? Yahweh Yideh. God will provide himself the sacrifice. You understand, we say God will provide all the time, but we don't finish it. God provides all of our needs, but our greatest need was Messiah. That God would come in the flesh and be our sacrifice. That was what was promised in Genesis 22. The incarnation that Jesus would be flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. In verse 14 of John 1, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation of Christ. Next he talks about his influence over everything, right? He says, who <coughs> in the flesh, uh, Christ who came in the flesh, who is over all. Who is over all. He's talking about the fact that he is omniscient, all-powerful, an attribute of deity, a God. 
Look what it says in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by Him, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth. By who? Jesus Christ. Who created? Jesus. What's the Bible say in Genesis 1, 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. That means He is preeminent of all creation. The most important being. The preeminent one. And in Him all things consist. He holds it together. If your life is falling apart, maybe you need Jesus to hold it together. If your world is falling apart, maybe you need Jesus to hold it together. But we come to that relationship with Jesus Christ in an honest way, submitting ourselves unto Him and receiving Him as our greatest treasure. But listen, the last thing that He talks about here, the last thing we're going to talk about in verse 5, who is the eternally (coughs) blessed God. Amen. The last thing He talks about, not only His humanity, His incarnation, not only His omniscience, that He is overall, that He is God in the flesh, but then His identity. In case there is any doubt, 1 John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we might know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true. And in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is God in the flesh. We have His identity, His incarnation, and His, in his omniscience, his, his power. He's saying, these are the blessings that you guys have. Paul says, I have a burden in my heart for my people because <coughs> they're accursed. They don't believe. And he says, but they don't believe, <coughs> but look at all the blessings they have. He's speaking of the nation of Israel. They had all those blessings and yet they didn't receive Him. He came into His own and His own received Him not. But to as many as received Him, to them gave you the power to become the children of God, to as many as believed in His name. So whoever receives Jesus Christ receives salvation. Whoever puts their faith in Jesus Christ receives all the things we've been talking about in the book of Romans. But those same blessings have been in our nation since... Before most of us were born. I know places in China you can't get a Bible to save your life. But you can go to Walmart and get a Bible every day. There's no shortage of the Word of God. There's no shortage of His of God's um, uh, witness in the, in the church or God's people in the nation. Yet, she is accursed. She is accursed because she will not have this one to rule over her. And that is what makes her accursed. That is what made Israel, ethnic Israel, accursed. The problem in the righteousness of God 
is if there's no separation and no condemnation, then how does that relate to the nation of Israel to whom God made all those promises? And Paul tells us it relates to her in this. Not everyone who says they're of Israel are Israel. Only those who have the faith of Abraham who believe. Real ethnic Israel will see in the following scriptures... God has a plan and a purpose for them. And that's cool and that's great. And if we're doing doctrinal things, you can say, Woohoo, I'm so excited about that. But let me tell you about how that relates to you. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because if you don't, you are accursed. I don't care how many times you come to church. You have got to receive Him as your Lord and Savior. Or the same thing that sets over the heads of the nation of Israel sets over the head of us in Buell, Idaho, or Twin Falls, or Castle Ford, Filer, wherever we find ourselves, Wendell, <laughs> Gooding, uh, what, from whatever direction we're, we're coming. Look, we've got to receive Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. If you haven't done that, you're not His, and you are accursed. And Paul's desire and our desire and the desire of every believer in this room is that you would receive Him. That you would hear Him knock at the door and open it. And let Him come into you and sup with you and you with Him. 